The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, I was, uh, man, I, I didn't realize I didn't have a mic on or nothing. I was singing along with y'all, worshiping Jesus, and I was like, oh, he's praying. All right, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to jump right in, dig into God's Word tonight. And this is a really familiar passage that I have, uh, I've never really preached in this context. We did go through the book of Ephesians, um, at the church where I'm a teaching pastor uh, last year, two years ago. And so we worked through the text in the context of finishing out a, uh, a study of the book of Ephesians in our church on Sundays. But I've never spoken on the, uh, the passage of Scripture entitled The Whole Armor of God. Never done that at a men's conference. And I thought, man, that's an injustice because the first, uh, the first verse we're going to read uses the, the words be strong, the challenge, there's a command given, there's a, um, an imperative there to be strong. And we, we, uh, we pulled, you know, we pulled that, the, the title for these conferences, we pulled it from 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen that, that uses that command also. Um, but here it is in Ephesians 6, so it's a, it is a, it's a text called the whole armor of God, or a passage that's referred to as the, the whole armor of God. There's a story that Gar tells. A lot of you guys know Gar, and uh, I think Gar had. I think Gar did four combat tours: one in Af- one in Iraq and three in Afghanistan. And Gar has spoken on this stage many times. He's one of our preachers and has a phenomenal testimony of God's grace, um, dealing with with drug addiction and and infidelity, infidelity and a, a blown marriage. And if you're here tonight and you got no hope, you need to go back and listen to Gar's story from Be Strong two springs ago. And you'll, it'll restore hope for sure. And, um, and Gar and his wife, Kimberly, and their four children uh, are preparing. We're preparing to commission and send them to the mission field to do work in West Africa. We're trying to help start a camp for kids. And so it's just a, an incredible story of redemption, the power of the gospel. You need to understand whatever, like whatever your deal is, you need to believe tonight that Jesus is bigger than that deal. And that the power of the gospel is bigger than, than your mess. And, and uh, but... Um, Gar, Gar got shot in the leg <clears throat> in 2006, I think it was, and, and what had happened was they were, uh, he was defusing, a, he, was, he was disarming a bomb, um, and so he's disarming this bomb, and, and they, they got, there was contact, and it was, uh, and it was pretty heavy contact, and, and what those guys were doing is they had figured out, those Iraqi fighters had figured out that, uh, that armor was was squared away on the front and back, but that the sides was where they could get rounds into somebody's body a lot easier. And so they were shooting from the side, and he and he got hit in the leg. Fortunately, elevation was off, but he got hit in the leg. And at that point, then there was a, an understanding, a new understanding of how the enemy was functioning and operating. And Gar talked about how they sort of had a different mindset and training uh, and preparing from that point forward. And the Bible says in uh, in Second Corinthians chapter two verse 11 that we should be aware of Satan's schemes and so one of the things we have in our in our war against the flesh in our war against Satan in our war our battle as men for um, what God has for us for our own holiness for our families 
is we have knowledge that our, we have knowledge of our enemy. We have tactical information on how our enemy functions. Satan doesn't, he's not, he's not a creator. He's very creative, and he studies human behavior. And many of you have read maybe uh, the C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, and it's an incredible picture of how Satan works, and um, really encourage you to read it if you hadn't. But we know that Satan is, he's out to, he's out to kill and destroy and rob and rape and pillage. But, but we can be aware of his tactics in that. We can be aware of his schemes. And, and Paul will tell the Romans that we should make no obligation for the flesh. Don't, don't make obligation for the flesh. Don't, don't make provision for your flesh. So if we know the enemy and then we don't make provision for our flesh, then we're tactically in, in a good position in the, in the war that we fight. Last night, Phil um, took the word of God and challenged us to be dangerous and daring. And he really keyed in on the idea of surrender. And then this morning, we looked at the necessity and the, the, the critical nature of every man of God being on mission to take the gospel to, to this world that is lost and dying and in need of Jesus. And tonight, we want to talk about preparing for battle, preparing for war, the fact that in the Christian life, we, we are constantly and continually in a war. And I'm, talking, I'm not just talking about a culture war. You know, we're, we're obviously in that. And it's a very volatile time in our society. But I'm talking about a spiritual war for your very soul, for the souls of your sons and daughters, for the souls of your brothers, and for those that don't yet know the Lord. And so we want to we look at, at what Scripture says about how we're to prepare for that and then to stay prepared and to, and to remain sharp and to, and to not be weekend warriors in our battle uh, against our enemies. And so Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to unpack about 10 verses. And so if you would read with me, uh, this is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to notice uh, I, I've counted and identified 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, 12 um, imperatives or commands for us in the text. So 12 commands. Sometimes scripture is not heavy on the command side. Sometimes it's heavier on the declarative or the indicative side. In other words, sometimes scripture is stating fact about who you are. Like if you read Ephesians 1, it'll say things like, you're adopted, you're redeemed, you are loved, you're a son of God, you have been given holiness. Like sometimes scripture is declaring what is true and we need to embrace that. But sometimes scripture is calling us to action. Okay, so, so we're, it's given us commands. God's given us instructions. So first he says we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Then he says we're to put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me give you just a little instruction um, on, on what the scripture teaches about the way these principalities and powers work. When we go back in time, go back in history, all the way to the book of Genesis, we see that in Genesis chapter 1, everything is very good. It's like, first it's good, then, oh, I like this part, then God sees that the man is alone, and he's like, well, that ain't good, so he makes the woman, amen, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, all right? So, so then it's very good, and it, but then in Genesis 3, 1, we read that the serpent has entered into the garden and cre- uh, that God created and is deceiving Eve. We must gather then that somewhere between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, there was a rebellion in the angelic world in which literal war broke out. 2 Peter 2, verse 4, Jude 6, both seem to record this event. The Bible teaches us repeatedly that there is a real enemy. Now, Scripture then would teach that 
that Satan is a fallen angel, that demons fell with him, that there was a rebellion in heaven, and, he, and he, he rose up to exalt himself against the throne of God, and he was defeated. He was cast down. And the scripture is very clear on that. One of the things that we know from the Bible that, that Satan does is he then works in and through the affairs and the hearts of men who are willing to submit to that. We even see it uh, often in the Old Testament with kings, rulers, pharaohs, people like that. We could probably say in modern, modern day uh, dictatorships, you look at people like Hitler, look at little old, old little man over there in North Korea. It's, you know, like, like there's a demonic force, no doubt, that is acting behind the affairs of those men. And so uh, when, when, we, when we study the way Satan works, we know that Satan... Is, is, is driving the affairs of men, when and where men will submit to that. Okay, so we got to be aware of that. Uh, the Bible teaches us that the world in which we live is in agreement with Satan and demons and is working against us. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. <clears throat> And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world, <coughs> excuse me, is that system that is in alliance with Satan. It is that domain in which Satan works and rules to push back against what God wants to do in the life of the believer. Or to, rem to keep in captivity the unregenerate or the lost. So the world is working against the believer to disrupt, to create chaos. Satan is working against the believer to create chaos and corruption. Do you ever feel like you're in a world where it's pushing back against you, where the enemy's pushing, and, and maybe that's Satan, but maybe that's the world, but you're being pushed hard against uh, this alliance of evil that's pushing back against you, and there's corruption, there's chaos, there's destruction. And so then the Scripture's teaching that that's the way Satan is working against the church, all right? But then he's working against the world itself, to keep people blinded to the gospel. The, word, the scripture would say that the God of this age blinds those that he enslaves. And so he's going to keep people enslaved in their sin, keep them in the darkness. And so our job in putting on the armor of God is to push back the darkness, penetrate the darkness with the darkness penetrating gospel of Jesus Christ and take the gospel to people that otherwise are blinded by the enemy. Okay, so we've got to identify the enemy. Revelation 12 there's a picture of redemption history beginning in Genesis 3 and ending in the future eternal triumph of Jesus. We see that war is being declared on and waged against God's people. Our victory is certain, first in Christ. Additionally, we are victorious through our testimony and commitment to testify to the gospel unto death. In this passage, Satan is seen being driven from the battlefield of heaven by Michael the archangel and cast down to earth where he makes war against God's people. In the Old Testament, there seem to be territorial demons. Daniel records a 21-day battle fought between a demon called the Prince of Persia, which seems to imply that this demon was a regional power over the mighty Persian Empire. In Jesus' ministry on earth, he routinely, <laughs> I like this, he routinely conquers demons that are controlling people. He, Jesus has never lost a single engagement with this enemy. Not one. You have lost engagements with this enemy. I have lost engagements with this enemy. Jesus has never lost an engagement with this enemy. And so when we compare Christ and Adam, the Bible would teach that before you're in Christ, you're in Adam. And then once you're in Christ, you're no longer in 
Adam, but you're in Christ. And Adam fell in his engagement with his enemy, and Christ conquered repeatedly. For us, we need to be aware of the way Satan works and of his schemes. And know this, that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, in the end of time, Satan and demons will be cast into hell and eternal judgment. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He will burn like a marshmallow. He will burn and burn and burn and burn. And all the child molestation and the addiction and the pornography and the rape and the wars that have been fought unjustly and human slavery and every godless act will burn with him. And that which is righteous will endure forever. And we'll be with Jesus is what we'll be. Now, we need to know from Scripture a few things about Satan and demons. Now, this is what I'm talking about here is to know doctrinally or doctrinally. Doctrine is right thinking as the Word of God gives it to us. So we need to understand what the Bible says about Satan so that we don't draw our theology from the world. And here's what the Scripture teaches us about Satan. Sin originated with Satan in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible tells us in John 8, 44, that Satan is the father of all lies. In 1 John 3, 8, Satan has sinned from the beginning. So in Genesis 3, in John 8, 44, and in 1 John 3, 8, we learn that sin originated with Satan. Number two, we learn that Satan and demons oppose and try to destroy the work of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of God. Uh, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In the Bible, we see demons use doubt. And listen, men, listen, brothers, have you ever dealt with any of these things? We see demons use doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, jealousy, or any other means possible to hinder the Christian. Every one of us can identify with those. Number three, Satan and demons have limited power and are under God's authority. Okay, so it's not like God and Jesus or like the good king and Satan and demons are the bad king and there's a cosmic clash. No, no. God's just the boss. Jesus is just the victor. He has conquered and will continue to conquer. And so Satan is at war against you and I trying to create destruction, but he's not like he doesn't have autonomy or authority that God have, hasn't given to him. He's on a leash, one, one pastor said that I heard one time. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, we see Satan working under the authority of God to attack God's people. So it's a, it's a very interesting story. James chapter 4 tells us in verse 7 that Christians can resist Satan and demons by the authority given them by Christ. They cannot know our thoughts. Satan cannot read our minds, but he does observe, study, and strategize human behavior, and he knows how to engage war and attack God's people. So that's understanding our enemy. Enemy number one is Satan and demons. So in this war, as I put on the armor of God, as I fight against principalities and powers, I need to understand the first enemy that I'm fighting is Satan and demons. The second enemy that I've got to engage and recognize and identify is the flesh, the sinful nature. I live in a body that has impulses and cravings that are not yet redeemed. There's a definition of flesh. Okay, what is the flesh? What is the, some Bibles will translate sinful nature. If I'm, like if I'm redeemed and I've been given, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, I have the mind of Christ. The Bible's telling us in our text 
that I'm in Christ, that I'm to put on the armor of Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that I'm to put on the armor of light. Okay, so if I'm in Christ and, I've, and I'm clothed in Christ and the Bible says I'm clothed in his righteousness, then what is the flesh that I have to contend with? It's this, I live in a body that has impulses and cravings that are not yet redeemed. Amen, is that right? Do you have a body that has cravings where you're like, where in the world does that come from? Why, what is, do you ever wake up from a, from a deep sleep and you had a dream and you go, I am twisted. Like right, like, like right now, like two nights ago. Woke up in the morning and was like, whoa, I'm capable of dreaming that? It was, it was wicked. It was wicked. And, 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 and sometimes even in our, in our thought processes, we're having to constantly war to take those thoughts captive. What is that? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the flesh. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, we don't wage war against, like, like the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that raises itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we bring into captivity every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. So it's a war, even in the mind and the flesh, is that part of us that has impulses and cravings that are not yet redeemed. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this body of flesh? Paul paints the picture of a dead body literally composing and being dragged around. I had a dog one time that kept eating my wife's chickens. But I loved that dog. And I didn't want her to kill that dog. I was like, don't, and she loved that dog too. I was like, don't, let me, let me, let me try. And I, old farmer, tell me, uh, tell me this trick. And some of you maybe have heard of this or even tried it. But I took one of them dead chickens. I cut it open. I threw it on the shed for about three days. It was maggot infested and rotten. And I duct taped that sucker around that dog's head and just ran gorilla tape like this and left it till it was gone. That dog, I can remember, and I don't, this is about 20 years ago, and I remember at one point, it had kind of rotted and was just hanging and strung out, and the dog's just walking like this and pawing at that thing. Finally got it pawed off, then it just had this nasty piece of flesh. And that dog stunk for a year, and they never ate a chicken since. They never ate a chicken since. Okay, so he's got this idea, like, of this decaying, fleshly body that's, that's he's like, so Paul's painting a picture of literally here we have this, the divided man. There's the redeemed, regenerate me, but the decaying flesh that's not yet redeemed in some of its impulses and cravings are like death hanging on me. That's the picture he's painting in Romans chapter 7. In Galatians chapter 5, I'm not going to read these, don't have time tonight. Paul goes through several lists of fleshly impulses and desires. Galatians 5, 16 through 24 through 25 i will say this that he says in verse 16 of galatians 5 that if if we resist the flesh or don't yield to the flesh then we won't gratify its desires or its demands in other words we won't carry them to fulfillment okay so he says so i say live by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh so if you live by the spirit those unredeemed unregenerate desires may still be there but you won't carry them to gratification or fulfillment. You'll be at war with them. Sometimes you'll fall down, sometimes you get beat up, but you'll be at war with them. And he goes on to list several specific um, of those desires. The spirit drives us in the direction of that which is holy. The flesh drives us in the direction of that which is unholy. The biggest battle you face as a man and the greatest enemy you face is that internal one with the flesh, not that external one with Satan. And I, I get really frustrated when I hear dudes 
hang too much credit on Satan. Oh, Satan, man, he's just, he's out to give me, he's got me, he's got me beat down. No, the, the biggest enemy is internal. And you can war against that. And what you'll find is that when you war against that, God gives you what you need to war against that external enemy. And so next, we need, so, so we know our enemy, Satan and the flesh. Know our enemy, Satan and the flesh. Next, number two, if we're talking about a battle, in verses 10 through 12, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Then here's what we need to know. Number two, we need to know our king. You need to know your king. Know who you serve. Know the one you've pledged allegiance to. Know the one who's redeemed and rescued you from the dominion and domain of darkness. Know the one who is taking you out of the grasp of sin. Know Jesus. Don't know religion. Know Jesus. Don't just know church. Don't just know your mama's God. Don't don't just know your grandmama's God. Don't just let your wife be the spiritual leader. Like, know Jesus and what he's commissioned you to. Know him personally and intimately. One of the beautiful teachings of God's word is the doctrine of what we call union with Christ. Union. I am unified with Christ. So union with Christ is prevalent in the book of Ephesians leading up to the text that we're in right now. And it's broken down into four aspects of our relationship with Christ. Number one, we are in Christ. No longer in Adam. We are in Christ in eternity. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before you looked at pornography, smoked weed, smacked your wife, or got molested as a child, before any of that happened, before the foundation of the world, God had a more powerful plan than that sin. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Additionally, we were in Christ, during Christ's earthly ministry. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made, right, uh, made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And then, and then we know that we are in Christ in our lives daily. Number two, Christ is in us. So I'm in Christ, and then Christ is in me. This is a powerful, like, sort of mind-spinning idea. I'm in Christ, and then Christ is in me. It's not like a Christian Russian doll thing here. Like, it's, not, it's, like, it's like somehow I'm in Christ, and, and there's this really powerful picture of me being held in Christ. There's another powerful picture of Christ in me now driving my thoughts, driving my actions, driving my emotions. And so this double, sort of double identifying thing with Jesus. John 15 verse 5 says, He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Number three, concerning union with Christ, we are like Christ. The Bible says I'm like Jesus. It says I'm to imitate Jesus. He's my great example. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, I am continually being conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's ultimate plan for me. Uh, number four, we are with Christ. So we're in Christ. He's in us. We are like Christ and we are with Christ, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. And number five, salvation unites me with Jesus until, uh, salvation unites me with Jesus in his death and resurrection. There's going to be a baptism tonight or tomorrow morning. I don't know when it's happening. Some guys getting, getting dunked and that, why is that such a powerful thing? Because Romans chapter 6 says, I am united with him in, in death. And I am united with him in resurrection. The symbolism of baptism is that, like, I, the old me is graveyard dead. 
like stone cold, smashed, dead, and decay, gone. And a new me has arrived. So I died with Christ symbolically, and I'm raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, according to Romans chapter 6. Okay, so salvation unites me with Jesus in death and resurrection. So we identify with Christ, and he has identified with us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our fears, our doubts, our joys, even when we express them, and he understands. So this is why we stand in Christ. Now, Think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan. He was tempted in the physical in that he was hungry and tempted to make bread. But more importantly, his humanly impulses and desires were appealed to in a spiritual manner. He was tempted to be prideful and idolatrous. In that battle, he has showed us how to win. So identifying the enemies, identifying our king, now we're in a position to see the battlefield clearly. Okay, so let's move on to verse 13 through 18. Verses 13 through 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all stand, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All right, so let's, let's unpack these six verses. So he says, take up the whole armor of God. So literary device, we see this a lot in Scripture, motifs and literary de devices. But in Greek mythology, I found this interesting. I ran across this in, in, in sermon study. Um, in, in Greek mythology... Uh, which was prevalent in that day, particularly in Ephesus, the city that Paul was writing to, um, a warrior would often go on, on, on a, like a personal mission or a vision, type, vision quest uh, kind of thing where uh, most well-known of these was in Homer's Iliad. The warrior hero Achilles went on a wartime killing rampage and was thought to be empowered by the gods. This would be depicted in the putting on of armor. In this scenario, the warrior was clothed in armor and then sent on a rampage of death and destruction. The picture of Yahweh as a warrior, as we have seen throughout Scripture, was important to the ancient Jews, and it needs to be important to us. Our God is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. That's what the Scripture teaches. The first act in taking up this armor is to submit into and unto Christ. God has spoken throughout the Old Testament of being the one who fought for his people. And for us, it is no different. We submit to Christ, he fights for us. We submit to Christ, he fights through us. As he clothes us in righteousness, so he will clothe us in his armor. The first step, we saw this last night, in following Christ. And the first step in going to war is letting go and submitting to Christ. So that it is Christ fighting in and through me, not me fighting in and of my own power. So it's this surrender idea that Phil's talking about last night is not just I surrender so that I'm obedient. I surrender so that I'm then empowered to go to war against these enemies that we've identified. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Joshua 1.5 no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with, Mo was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. The word be still, the Hebrew word, the word uh, to be still is rapa. And the word means to become slack, to relax, to let drop. It's often related to the hand. So it's the idea of dropping the hand or dropping the idea of the hand often in, 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 in ancient terminology being 
the, the right hand or the strong hand. And he's saying, I drop that as if to imply that God is going to do this through me. The psalm says, relax. In other words, put your hands down. Let God be God. Remember teaching your kid how to ride a bike? And, and, and boy, and that stiffness is what, and once they learn, and maybe you remember learning to ride a bike yourself, I can't remember that, but I, but I remember teaching some kids to ride, and it's, initially there's this stiffness, there's this stiffness when we start to relax and get fluid, that's the idea that I'm relaxing, putting my hands down, letting God fight for me. The Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent, Exodus 14, 14. If you think about it, the list Paul has given us in the next few verses are rooted in and characteristic of Jesus. Verse 14, again, the armor listed is a literary device. We could hypothesize a lot about each one. The Roman helmet looked like this. This Roman sword was short. And I, I, and I love studying that stuff. Tonight, we don't have time to drill into that. I want to look at the key words that these literary devices are describing. Let's look at the actual characteristics and virtues the believer is to be armed with in putting on Christ daily. So here's the weapons the characteristics, and the virtues that you and I are to be armed with daily as we put on Christ. First, he says, truth. We need to combat the lies of this world, this flesh, and the devil with the truth of God's word. Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. We live in a world where lies abound. One of the things Satan will do is he will lie and accuse and manipulate. Lying is destructive. This is why as parents we have to teach at the earliest age our children to tell the truth no matter what the consequences are. Many of you have believed lies your whole life. I'm not good enough. I'm not wanted. I'm used up. I can't expect God to give me a faithful spouse. I can't expect God to give me faithful kids. I already blew it and messed up what's the use in trying money will buy joy sex will bring love security is had in a relationship pornography is harmless like like lies destroy homes marriages joy and clear security and understanding of who we are in christ lies are always destructive guess where lies come from you got it satan jesus says satan is the father of lies lying originated with him and has, has continued throughout history a lie can be told and be extremely destructive. If someone said to you, your wife is cheating on you with her coworker, that may be completely made up, but it can create instability and mistrust. Satan doesn't need anything to be true. He just needs people to buy into it. We must know who we are in Christ and know what his plans and purposes are for us. Lies lead people to do horrible things. Unfaithful spouses believe they will be satisfied with an affair. People go into massive amounts of debt because they believe they will be satisfied with more stuff. People obsess over being accepted by people they don't even really like. Trying to impress people that we don't even like. We must live our lives in light of the truth. Live in the truth of the gospel. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. It's what Jesus said, man. Jesus told Pilate, everybody who's on the side of truth listens to me. So listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Don't listen to the lies. Next, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need our hearts guarded. Don't be confused. Jesus gives us his righteousness when he saves us. He takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. It's called the imputation of righteousness. But as believers, we're called to live holy and righteous lives. We're told that God's purpose for us is holiness and blamelessness back in Ephesians chapter 1. We're made righteous in Christ, but we are called to daily pursue righteousness and faithfulness. Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness and faithfulness. 
there's a, there's a cool passage where Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, a man of God is defined by, by several things. And one of those things is he's defined by what he pursues. And we're to pursue righteousness. He says, you, O man of God, pursue righteousness. The point is, because you have been made righteous, now go live like you're righteous. I got an adopted son, right? He's black, I'm white. Ain't no, like, nobody's like, huh, he looks like you. Like nobody ever says that. And, and a daughter, too. They're, they're biological siblings. And I, like, never once, like, I would die before I would imply to that child that he has to earn my name. Uh, that, that would defeat the entire purpose of the relationship, particularly the picture of the gospel played out in that relationship. The, the identity has been changed. The new name has been given. The family is now grafted together. There's a seat at the table. There's a bed in the house. There's security and there's like prosperity to be had in the relationship. There's a new identity given. But there are expectations if you're my son and you wear my last name that I'm going to hold you to. They don't, they don't solidify your identity. They don't keep you in that house. But you guys should, by this point, know how this works. There's expectations. There's, we don't, like, there's certain things we don't do. There's certain, certain attitudes we don't have. There's things we don't say. And there's times where I would say to one of my sons, your last name is Holloway, so knock it off. Is anything wrong with that? No. It's an understanding of identity that, that calls us to action. But what we do oftentimes is we reverse that with the idea that if, and listen, some, I know some of you dudes, this is where you're at. If I can clean myself up enough, if I can get myself to a good place, if I can beat this habit or this addiction, if I can break it off of this woman, then I'm going to come to Jesus. That's not how it works. You surrender to Jesus. He imputes his righteousness to you. He makes you righteous. And now he says, now go live like someone who's more than a conqueror, victorious in Christ. You've got a new identity. John Stott, in his good commentary on Ephesians, says this. It is inconceivable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting the obligation to imitate our father and cultivate the family likeness. John Stott, he's a smart dude, man. I love that guy. Love, love, loved him. I love him. I didn't know him. Let me read that again. It is inconceivable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting the obligation to imitate our father and cultivate the family likeness. This means that what we watch matters. What we say matters. Where we go matters. What we look at matters. Who we have sex with matters. What we put into our bodies matters. We do based on who we are. You do. You act. You live based on who you are. One of Satan's tactics now is to convince us that we can't change. People buy into the lie and they make excuses. Well, that's just how I am. Guess I'll never change. I was just made this way. It's the way I'm hardwired. Jesus changes us every single day, Paul tells the Corinthians, from one degree of glory to the next with the ultimate goal of being total conformity to the image of Jesus. Sanctification always leads to glorification. Paul tells those vile and carnal worldly Corinthians, such were some of you, but you were justified, saved, and made righteous. You were sanctified, continually conformed to the image of Christ, and you will be glorified, made like Jesus forever, in eternity, in a kingdom that will never end. Jesus changes us when he saves us. Jesus is bigger than therapy. He's bigger than addiction. He's bigger than counseling. He's bigger than your abusive past or your past as an abuser. Jesus is bigger than your pornography. 
He's bigger than your job loss. He's bigger than your wayward child. He's bigger than your divorce, your failures, your frustrations, and your misery. He has made you righteous. So listen to him, and in listening to him, reject the lies of the world and of Satan. Jesus is bigger than all that. He's big. He's better. He's greater. In verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, he tells us what we're to wear. Footwear is important. And footwear is very specific. Dancers, football players, business executives, skateboarders, rock climbers, tennis players, golfers, race car drivers, nurses, loggers, and the list goes on and on, all use specific types of shoes to do their job. My son is, I got one, son, one boy who's a sophomore in high school and he's going to run, he's running, he's doing track this year. I don't know about track. In the fourth grade, I was in the Boy Scout, or the uh, RA. Y'all know what RAs are? Every, any of y'all ever go to that? When I was a kid, I was in RA track meet. I was bragging to him the other day, I got four, fourth place in the softball throw. Green ribbon. <laughs> I think that's when that whole give everybody a trophy thing started about my childhood. All right, so, so like, I don't know nothing about track. I know I see it once in a while in the Olympics, you know, run fast and. I don't run fast, so like, you know, like jump far, I can't jump far, so it's never been super appealing to me. He's like, I'm going to run track. I'm like, that sounds good, man, you run track. Turns out he's real good at it. Then he told me he needs some track shoes. I was like, well, you go, you go on Amazon, I got an account, you go to Dick's and, and buy yourself some track shoes because <laughs> you got them tennis shoes. What's wrong with them? And then I got to find out track shoes are specific. Everything footwear specific, right? Everything footwear specific. Maybe you got to wear steel toes at boot, uh, steel toe boots at work. Maybe you got to wear, so, you know, like like something that's really comfortable if you're gonna stand on your feet all day. Footwear is very specific. There are a lot of areas of my wardrobe where I will buy expense inexpensive items. I wear snowbird t-shirts. So somebody told me, somebody told me, I don't, you wear t-shirts all the time. I'm like, yeah. There's this thing called free. It's my favorite price. That was from about circa 2006. We didn't even have the, the Snowbird logo yet. All right? I'll be, I'll be wearing some Snowbird t-shirts, okay? So, and I wear Walmart, 16.88. That's my jeans. my jeans. My wardrobe from the neck to the ankles is 16.88. Now, I got a good gun leather belt that costs 100 bucks. all right? We'll talk about the belt in a minute, all right? That's important. Got to hold up, you know. You got to be, all right, so, but then, and then the boots, the boots are important. I'll spend money on boots. I'll spend money on footwear. I'll spend money on rain gear, and I'll spend money on gear, but when it comes to my daily wardrobe, the only thing I spend a bunch of money on is boots. <laughs> uh, I, I needed a dress shirt, and I needed a suit, because I was going to, I was preaching a funeral, and, uh, and I had, I had a suit, and it got burned in a fire, and so uh, I needed to buy a new suit. <laughs> That's a true story I don't have time to go into. All right, so I need to buy a new suit. You know, I went J.C. Penney. I saw it on the, on the Internet. They had a sale. J.C. Penney, 99 bucks. That thing's about this big around in my midsection. I don't care. I don't ever wear that suit unless somebody dies, and then nobody cares what you're wearing. <laughs> nobody cares, right? So, or if it's like at a, uh, at a wedding, and if it's at a wedding, nobody's looking at the preacher at a wedding. Who are they looking at? The bride, right? Nobody cares. So, like, I'm not going to put money in that. But footwear, I'm going to buy the best I can afford for the task at hand. Imagine going to war wearing Crocs or Chacos or flip-flops. Here comes the flip-flop brigade. So, pop, to pop, to pop, to pop. Woo! Sword. 
like, no, we're like shin guards and boots and we're kicking doors in, right? Like, but footwear is a big deal. Nobody's scared of the flip-flop brigade. That's cool around the house, around the campsite, like chilling. Like I slip on the Crocs and just chill and relax around the house. But when I'm going to war, I'm going to wear the right footwear. Nobody's scared. Not like, like imagine a biker dude. I just read a book about this dude that infiltrated this biker gang. He was a, he was a federal agent. It's a pretty cool book. Imagine dude on the biker gang TV shows, you know, them shows. And he comes rolling up on his chopper and he's wearing all leather chaps, vest, gloves, Hard dude, man, hard dude, Mongols. Like I'm patched in, you know, like, and he's got flip-flops on. (laughs) Immediately, I got a box I put that dude in, all right? Like, like, like that's called the flip-flop box, all right? So, so like, you don't need, like, like you don't need boots for certain things, but you need them for battle or you need footwear. You need the right footwear, the proper footwear. The gospel is what we walk in. It's what we stand in. 1 Corinthians 15.1 says, I would remind, 15.1 and 2, and now I would remind you, brothers, of the, of the gospel which I preached to you and which you received, past tense, and in which you now stand, present tense, and in which you are being saved. The gospel has a past, present, and future work in the life of a believer. But presently and currently, I'm to stand rooted in the gospel. Over and over in Scripture, the Word of God will tell us to stand, stand firm. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, and over in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, be immovable, be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So stand firm in it. Stand firm. Be rooted. Footwear matters. Foot positioning matters. And what is he saying we're to do? What's, what is he, he saying in verse 15? In verse 15, he says, Man, my eyes, I can't see in the, without the light. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1, I remind you of the gospel in which you now stand. What's the footwear? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Nick, this morning when he was teaching his breakout, he's like, like I was like really convicted when he's like talking about the ACC basketball thing, you know, like tournament, who's Carolina fans? Woo-hoo. And who's Duke fans? Woo-hoo. And I'm like, and I didn't, I don't really have a dog in the fight, but I'm like, but, I'm, but I didn't, I wasn't, I was convicted that I don't get as excited about Jesus as I ought to. You know what will excite you? Go back to the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. Oftentimes you hear the old preacher say, preach the gospel to yourself continually because that is what equips your feet for the task that God's called you to. Footwear is important. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith is critical. Faith will be tested. It'll be attacked by doubt, and it'll be war-battered. All of the shields that I've ever seen are replicas and museum pieces. So it was neat when I had the opportunity to go into a museum and see an old shield from an ancient era that had chunks missing, dings and dents, and it was very battered from blocking the blows of an enemy sword. Romans 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God, and the shield that we carry is that faith. How do we grow faith? We grow it through the word of God. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. You want to grow strong? You want to defend against Satan's attacks? Read your Bible. Know your Bible. That's what Jesus did in Luke 4 and Matthew 5. And have your feet firmly planted in the gospel. And you'll combat the attacks of Satan and the lies of the flesh. And lastly, in verses 17 through 19, We got to 18. Let me read 19. And also for me that words may be given 
to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for that to which I'm an ambassador and change that I may declare it boldly as I speak. He talks about the helmet, the sword, and he talks about our, our, he uses the, the idea of prayers of supplication, which would be in a combat uh, setting. That would be your comms. That's communications. And so he talks about the helmet, which is to protect your noggin, your brain bucket. Remember, uh, those of you that were here two years ago, Gar came out on Saturday night in the session. He put on his, his, his helmet. And he said, how silly would it be to walk into combat wearing only the helmet remember that but that's exactly such a powerful point he made it i've never forgotten it and it's it's meant a lot to me in my personal walk that point that gar made in that sermon the idea how many of us in the bible belt the thing that we arm ourselves with is well i got saved got the helmet on but then we're buck naked and exposed on the battlefield i got my helmet on Right? Like, I'm good, man. I got saved. Like, I don't know how many times I talk to people who share the gospel, especially in, in this cultural, rural, Bible Belt context. Everybody I tell about Jesus got saved somewhere down the road. Everybody. And I'm not to judge a man's salvation, but I know that, every, like, Scripture seems to be clear that not everyone who calls on the Lord's name is truly saved. And there are fruits and evidences that should be on display in my life. And one of the things I think we do is we put on a false sense of security with what we believe is the helmet of salvation, but we are to wear it. So this is critical. And you've been challenged this weekend already. You need to be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Tonight, when we sing in just a couple minutes here, as, I'm, as, as I leave the stage and we sing a couple more songs to Jesus, may you surrender your life to Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. Quit playing games and be saved. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. And then he says that, that he, he talks about the sword, which is the word of God. Salvation is what protects our mind. The constant barrage of the gospel against the lies of the flesh and the devil will subdue the enemy and protect the sacred ground of our thoughts and our mind. Jesus used the scriptures, and so should we. The word of God is what will guard our hearts and mind and drive back the attacks of the enemy. So Paul calls the word of God a sword. And I love this. It's critical to handle the sword rightly, to rightly divide the word of truth. Hermeneutics is a word you need to like, like familiarize yourself with. A proper method of studying scripture is critical so that you don't misinterpret, misallocate, put words in God's mouth. Accuracy of scripture is critical. God intended to say what he intended to say. So we need men who sit in the pews of our churches and hear and engage the Word of God as they're engaged by it and then open their Bibles on a daily basis and are engaged by the Word of God, which is living and active. Here's what we need to know in our critical handling of the Word of God. Intent. What was God saying? What did He intend to say? Because He said it. Application. What does this mean for me right now in my life? What does this mean for me? Accuracy accuracy i don't leave when i don't know i don't make up i don't get to a text and go oh what does that mean well to me it must mean no 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 no, don't do that oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his ways how inscrutable and unknowable are his thoughts who has known the mind of the lord who's been his counselor who's given a gift to god that he might be repaid it's okay when you get into the mystery and can't figure it out you roll with the mystery, okay? Like, don't, like, accuracy is critical. And when we think of a sword, if we were going to move that into modern-day combat, it wouldn't be a sword, it would be a rifle. 
It would be a weapon that we would engage an enemy with in combat. That's what he's talking about. And so you think about accuracy. It's critical that the rounds are being put on target. And then you talk about continuity of fire. You talk about like, like putting enough rounds on fire, I mean on target. So accuracy matters. Like, like, like superiority of firepower matters. Continuity of fire matters. You've got an enemy that's relentless, so your fire back against him has to be relentless. And so the sword that I use to fight with is the word of God. And then, and then the last thing he says in that three-verse section is he talks about prayer, which is a powerful weapon. It's not soft and passive activity in the war we wage. Comms are critical. I've got a buddy that's got a bronze star who's set for eight hours. He was a JTAC dude. He's set for eight hours on on, connected on comms, talking to someone that's sitting and like like literally on, a long ways from 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 the engagement, and for eight hours he called he like he called in airstrikes on buildings in this small village. And what happened was eventually he was he was awarded the the, the bronze star, and he never stepped physically into the firefight. But but like the team leader getting on the helo said you saved our lives tonight why because communications matter right like even there was a point where like this fire team of four dudes would move a building it was a seal team and they would change buildings they would fight they would back up one building it was a street 10 buildings on this side 11 buildings on this side and they're working their way back down the street they've got about 150 insurgents that have surrounded them and and those b1s are taken out building after building boom 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 it was critical that communication be made properly so that the right building is being struck as those guys are hopping back down the street right communications are critical and so prayer is a wartime mentality john piper says this we cannot know what prayer is for until we know uh, what prayer is for until we know that life is war life is war that's not all it is but it is certainly that our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth prayer is primarily a wartime communication for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts downstairs in the den. God had given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer is critical. And Paul would, say, would teach us two things about prayer. We should pray comprehensively and we should ask for boldness. Pray comprehensively and ask for boldness. Uh, Vic, today, in his message today, under, I think it was the third point, talked about, the, like, there's a point where i got to be bold. And particularly in that context, personal evangelism. There's a need for me to pray and ask for that boldness. I want to, I, 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 like, like, I want to I challenge you men to take up the sword of the Spirit, to bend your knee in prayer to pray without ceasing, to pray comprehensively, to make supplication for your wives, your future wives, your, your, those of you that aren't married yet, your sons, daughters, and for generations to come. Like, let's just simply do what God tells us to do in his word. Let's put on the armor. Not, not asking you to not, not, like no special challenge here. Like, hey, go do something new. Like this got written a while ago. But it's like not new. Like I didn't come up with this tonight. Like, hmm, let's, let's, let me write something out here in the pages of scripture. And tonight, like this been there. We just need to do what, what we're told to do. We just need to submit, surrender, and go to war. Fight against the desires and demands of the flesh. Don't be a punk to your flesh. Don't, you, don't let your flesh dominate you. That's not what God created you for. 
Don't let your insecurities control who you are. Don't let some lie your stepdad or your abandoning dad or your mama or somebody abusive told you when you were a kid. Get over that. Listen to what the creator God of the universe, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. What he says, that's truth. What God says about you, that's true. So know it and go to war with that comprehensive understanding of Scripture and, and know that these things are given us by God so that we might wage the good war as we surrender to Christ and He acts in and through us and we're no longer sons of Adam, we're sons of God through Jesus. Amen? Amen. So here's the challenge. If you don't know Jesus tonight, man, let's talk. Let's talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. Let me, te- let me tell you. You don't have to talk to me. I got saved on the side of a mountain miles from anybody. 20 years old searching. (laughs) I read that verse. A lot of y'all heard my testimony. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I built a fire, wrote a contract with God, cut myself straight across the chest. I got a big old scar right here. She bled all over that contract, burned it, offered it up to God. Went to church next Sunday, walked the aisle, told the preacher who was a bow hunting buddy of mine, a construction general contractor, I worked for that dude. Walked down there, I said, hey man, I got saved. He's like, huh, well tell me about it. I said, well, without the shedding of blood, I read that verse in the Bible. I opened the Bible up, read it, cut myself, I bled out with his own. He's like, you're an idiot. You've completely, like you've complete, like you, that's the problem, man. It ain't about your blood. Like your blood ain't good enough. And he told me about the blood of Jesus. And let me tell you tonight about the blood of Jesus, that one drop of it will cleanse an eternal, like condemnation of a world from unrighteousness. Like Jesus' blood will cleanse you. And we'll talk to you about it. But somebody, I'm going to do something here before I step off stage. If you're a man here tonight, don't raise your hand just because you feel like you're obligated to. If you are more than comfortable to walk a, brother, a, 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 a searching potential brother through the gospel of Jesus Christ and help walk him into that relationship, would you raise your hand? All right, look around if you're not raising your hand. It's cool. There's a bunch of dudes here that said, yeah, okay, y'all can put your hands down. Thank y'all. There's men here, and what I would encourage you as an invitation, you can come down here and talk to one of us pastors, but th- probably somebody you know just raised his hand. And that'd be an awesome place to start this journey with a brother that's going to walk through this thing with you. And let's do it. Like, like quit fighting, quit hiding, quit running, submit to Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ already, maybe it's time to start living like it. So you surrender to Jesus tonight. You give him your life afresh and anew. And let's walk. Let's just do what he's told us to do. Nothing new, nothing fancy. Just do what we're told to do. That's all. I'll pray. God, I pray that tonight as we go into a time of worship and response, your word would be clear to us, that you'd settle it deep into our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and that we would respond in obedience. God, I pray if there are men here tonight that don't know you, don't have relationship with you, don't have fellowship with you, that you would draw them out of darkness and into light. God, that you would lead them in paths of righteousness. That, that, and, and for those that need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, maybe they've got a false sense of salvation. Maybe they've believed a lie. And God, I pray tonight you'd draw them to yourself and you'd, you'd, you'd make it clear and they would surrender to you. I pray for men that are beaten down, for men that are having marital struggles, dealing with issues at home. But they, they're in over their heads. They don't know how they can save their marriage. And maybe they can't, but you can. And that's going to start with them surrendering it to you. And to know that when I drop my hands and you fight for me, that's far more effective than when I fight for myself. But God, it is a war. And I've got to surrender to you so that I might fight effectively by your power, with you fighting through me. And I pray that, that men would have the tenacity tonight to just, those that have fallen face down in the mud, that they'd grab a few handfuls of dirt and mud and claw themselves back to their feet by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they'd stay in the fight. They'd keep moving forward. 
and you'd give them a new and an, an invigorated zeal for the gospel and for obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. And you'd change the world because of faithful, godly men who just do what you told us to do. Have your way now. We want to sing to you because you're worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.